Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. I'd like you to read with me from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And in this particular section, these descendants of Judah, these people who were in southern Palestine, have been exiled. They've been deported. They've been taken out of their homes. They've been taken away from their city. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Um, the temple itself is in ruins. And the people are now in another town, in another culture. They're in the biggest city in the world at that time. That city had a strategy which was to assimilate all new cultures so that if you really wanted to prosper, if you wanted to have any success whatsoever, you had to leave your identity behind. You had to leave your own name behind and adapt their name, their cultures their way of being. The only way they allowed you to really have any success is if you stopped being you and you became one of them. And so in the midst of this, God begins to speak to his people. Now this is fairly significant because for, for over 20 years, the people have not listened to God. They are not there because Babylon is so powerful. They are there because they are so wicked. They have disobeyed God, they've rebelled against God, they've tried to kill the messenger of God to get rid of the message. They've even tried to destroy the book that God had the prophet write in order to get rid of the message. And so here is our God in the midst of the worst situation of these people's lives, speaking to them with the greatest hope that anyone could ever give. And so we're going to read this together. And uh, this is just verses 10 through 12. I like it when you read out loud with me. I want you to notice something. This word of the Lord is not just to Judah. It's to every nation. In other words, the word to us. So let's read this together. Ready? Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. Now, there's two themes that I really want us to leave understanding today. The first is God as our shepherd, but also the direction our shepherd always leads us is home. So here he says that though this group of people who have acted so disobediently, so rebelliously, that he calls them spiritual adulterers, he speaks to them and says, now your shepherd will bring you home. Now, in the Old Testament times, shepherds took care of everything for the sheep. They protected them, they provided for them, they were their healers. They even gave each sheep a name so that the shepherd could call the individual sheep's sheep and the sheep would come to him. And so here is God saying to his wayward people, to Judah, he's saying, Judah, do you not understand that you are in a situation where you cannot save yourself? 
The circumstances are too big. The people who have you captive are too strong. You need someone bigger than them and bigger than your circumstances to come in and redeem you from this situation. I, I know Danny talked about this just a few minutes ago. I think it's true, too, that there are some of you today that you're in circumstances that are too big for you. You're facing obstacles that are too much. You're in marriages that are too difficult. You're in family situations too difficult. Jobs, health issues. You need to hear this word of the Lord is that he is the shepherd who wants to come in and rescue and restore his sheep and he will pay whatever price needs to be paid in order to redeem you from your situation. This is who he has always been. As a matter of fact, you kind of see it as a, a strong motif in all the Old Testament. David himself, the, the king who becomes such a great king, became a great king because he had been a shepherd. When he was all alone as a teenager, he had to fight against a lion, against a bear. No one gave him applause for that, but he learned how to trust the Lord by being a shepherd. But it's interesting that David, the shepherd boy, his most famous line is, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, he might have been a shepherd, but what he knew of the Lord is that if he really wanted to lack nothing, then the Lord had to be a shepherd. I mean, think about all the things that are in Psalm 23. It's only as you come under the shepherd that you then begin to experience everything that's promised in Psalm 23. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests and the prophets were known, even the king was known as shepherds of God's people. But the scripture says that they were only under shepherds. God never gives up the place of shepherd in the lives of his people. And so when the priests and the prophets or the kings did not live under the authority of God or when they were not directed by the word of God, he called them unfaithful shepherds, unfaithful priests, unfaithful uh, caretakers for his people. 25 different times in the Old Testament, God calls himself the shepherd who will shepherd his flock. Jesus affirms this as his role in our lives when he says, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, here's how I qualify as the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. But he also says, reminded of that Old Testament image of shepherd, I know my sheep. I call them by name. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. See, what God's saying here, as he begins to unpack the hope for the future of his people, is he's saying the first thing that has to happen is that you have to be restored to your shepherd. You're not the shepherd, you're the sheep. And it takes a kind of a humility to begin saying, yes, life is overwhelming. Yes, the challenges are daunting. Yes, I, I'm being asked more than I have resources for. That's basically what stress is. Stress is feeling like you have more demands, more needs than you have resources. And so the shepherd comes in and says, be restored to me. Don't be your own shepherd. You're just a sheep who's lost. You can't be your own shepherd. It's too big for you. And he says, I will be your shepherd. So he restores us 
to that position that is the rightful position of shepherd and sheep. And then David helps us understand this. He says he leads us to green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. Even when we come into the presence of our enemies, David says the good shepherd then prepares your table for you in the presence of your enemies. And then he says, he fills my cup. But he says, more than just fill. Some, some of us sometimes, to have a full cup is, is an exciting thing. But what, what the scripture says, it's not full till it's overflowing. My cup overflows. Why is that? It's never enough for you to have just enough for you. You have to have enough for everybody. You have to have enough for your family. You have to have enough for your friends, for your work, for all these things. God not only fills your cup as your shepherd, but he overflows that cup. And then even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil. Because the Lord is your shepherd in even those times. You see, it's an exciting thing in many ways for many of us to say, Lord, deliver me from this situation. Or Lord, give me a better job. Or Lord, give me a husband or a wife. Or give me this or give me that. And then when we get it, it's exciting. That's wonderful, friends. But that's temporary. What he's saying here is he wants to have this constant and continual relationship to you as your shepherd. Now, that means he leads. That means he directs, he protects, he delivers. Not you delivering yourself. See, we have to change the way we pray. Instead of praying to tell God how he will lead us, or using anxiety, which... Anxiety basically says, I know how things ought to be and they're not turning out the way I think they ought to, which is basically, again, telling the shepherd, I know what you should do for me. Or we get so angry with him because he doesn't do it our way or in our time, which actually doesn't reveal that he's a bad shepherd. It reveals that we actually have made ultimate what we're asking for. We have made that our treasure. We have made that the thing. And we're just asking God to be our genie or our, you know, our bodyguard or our dispenser or whatever it might be. And God chooses to be your shepherd, not your assistant. Many of us, our prayer lives are so weak because what we really love is what we're praying for, not the one we're praying to. See, as long as all you care about is is the blessings, you'll never know the blesser. But see, once you really make the blesser everything, then he can give you anything. But as long as anything is everything to you, then he's got to resist you. He's got to stop you. As a matter of fact, the shepherd used to take the sheep and break their legs because he knew that they were wandering off all the time. So then he would take them, break their legs, hold them close, and carry them everywhere so that they would learn to trust the heart of the shepherd. Some of us have some broken legs in here. And we're angry about it. Why'd you break my legs? He said, the one who scattered Israel is also the one who will bring them back. At some point, you got to realize that God has a right to even break your legs since he gave them to you. He has a right to clip your wings. See, some of us learn our lessons really hard and really long. 
instead of realizing, you know what? If I'm going to really have deep faith, if I'm really going to be deeply rooted, he gets to be the shepherd. I'm the sheep. But lest you think he's cruel, think about how compassionate he is in this promise. This is a group of people who have resisted him for over 20 years. They have gone after every other God when he's the only God who does anything for them. Matter of fact, he had a picture that I want to share with you. He tells Hosea, the prophet, to show my people what they're like. And so he tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. So she stays with him for a while, and while she's with him, she's cheating on him. How do I know that? Because one of the kids was named Not My Kid. I mean, that's pretty evident, right? So then she leaves him and goes and shacks up with her pimp. I don't know what that is in Hebrew, but that's what it was. <laughs> and the guy is mistreating her. The guy is doing all manner of stuff to her. And God tells Hosea, go and take food and money to your wife. And he's met at the door by the man. And he gives the food and the money to the man because what he cares about is not the credit, but the nourishment and the clothing. And so the, the bad man takes credit for the food and the, clo the clothing and the money. You see, God says, that's who I am. Even when you were in your rebellion, I was still supplying. I was still giving to you. I was still taking care of you. Now, you thought it was your job or your boss who was taking care of your husband or wife or whoever it was, but it was always me, even when they took credit for what I did for you. And so here's the compassion of our God. He speaks hope to a people who have been nothing but rebellious, nothing but adulterous, and he says to them, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Here's the significance of this. If today you've wandered from God or you're struggling with God or you're, you know, you're messed up or your life is messy or whatever it is, God will never look you in the guy and go, I got you now. When you look him in the eye, he will always be a shepherd who loves his sheep. When you, when you come back to him, he will be as excited about you coming back as if you came to him for the first time. He is so compassionate that you can, you can screw it up because some of you are hard-headed and stubborn people. And when you do, you remember my words that I said our God will deal with you with compassion. He will deal with you even in your desperate situations that you created. He will restore even what you have blown. How do I know that? Because this is a people who have messed up more than you have. This is a people who have gone after other gods while God gave them everything. And yet he says to them, I will forgive you and I will remember your sins no more. That's an awesome compassion. See, some of us, are, the voice we hear is not God's voice. It's an accusing voice. It's a condemning voice. Oh, I can't take you back. You know what you've done. Listen, the accusing and condemning voice doesn't come from God. It comes from the accuser who loves to condemn you and God in your head. There's only two voices that you should allow to, uh, 
any access to your mind, your own voice and the voice of God. Not even your mother's voice should be there. <laughs> because listen to me, Satan uses familiar voices to destroy you. It must be God's voice, because only in Christ is there therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So his voice will not be a condemning voice. If there's accusation there, then it's the enemy. The Bible says you can understand whether it's God or the shepherd, whether God the shepherd of the sheep or whether it's the enemy of your soul. He says, godly sorrow produces change and leaves no regret. See, godly sorrow is a conviction about what you've done wrong so that you can change. Regret is about things you can never change. And so the enemy deals in regret, God deals in change. He's a shepherd who's compassionate. Are you hearing me today? You tracking with me on this? So he deals with compassion with people who are literally homeless. Everything's gone for them. I mean, they, they are exiles. They are true refugees. They're not immigrants. They're conscripted people who have been brought against their will. And they're in a place where Jeremiah begins to speak prophetic solutions to them about their situation. But he's not the only one. Ezekiel speaks into this situation. Isaiah, one of the, some of the Psalms speak into it. Now, I love what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel says, God has said to you and it declares to you that I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to exchange it for a heart of flesh. And I'm going to take this desert and I'm going to turn it into the Garden of Eden. That's the promise of God right here. Isaiah also says, I'm going to take this desert land, this, un, you know, this, this, this unusable land, and I'm going, to, I'm going to actually flow streams in the desert. I don't know if you've ever been in the Middle East, but that, there is just desert everywhere. I was thirsty every minute of every day that I was there. I just looking out and going, where's the water? You know, uh, it was amazing to be in that situation. And the promise was God was going to take this desert, turn it into Eden, turn it in a place where streams of water flowed. And in, also in Isaiah, he starts to talk about a change, a major change, where these powerful kingdoms of Egypt and Assyria would be brought into the people of God. As a matter of fact, he uses an imagery. He says, the lion will lay down with the lamb. In Psalm 87, we have another picture. God says, I will restore the city of Zion. I will restore the city of God. And my glory will reside there, and everyone will see it. Okay? All right, those are the promises of God, and they're directed to the people who are exiles in Babylon. Well, if you know anything about your history or if you've gone and looked at any of these places, there aren't streams in the, in the desert. Matter of fact, there have been places in the desert there that used to have streams and don't have streams now. The city of Jerusalem is not glorious. It's not filled with the city of God. It's divided into four quadrants of fighting factions. There's no glory in that city of Zion. So what is going on here? God is always faithful to his word. His promises are always true. So what was he doing when he made these over-the-top kind of promises? 
Well, he was doing a whole lot more than bringing a small group of people back to their land. He was actually speaking to all of us about how he wants to bring us all home. Now, think for a minute. I know it's Sunday afternoon now, but think for a minute. Okay? God used all of his resources. He, he put his law into a, in, and his word into written form. He gave them a temple. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the, his glory, his presence, all of these things to one little tribe, one little group of people at the southern end of Palestine. And, and, and this group of people couldn't even handle it. They sinned against him. They were wicked. But God keeps bringing them back. He keeps protecting them. Why did he do that? Did, was it because he loved them and he didn't love anybody else? No. He was protecting Judah because from Judah would come the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He protected Judah to save you. He was thinking of you. Every one of these promises, streams in the desert, lions laying down with lamb, everything coming together into a city where the glory of God is so present and so real, it's all for us. It's for everyone in the world. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Irish, the French, the Haitians, the Jamaicans, every single culture, Indians, every culture represented. He's making the promise to us. He made it so big it couldn't be fulfilled by one tribe. He had you in mind when he spoke this 2,600 years ago. Are you hearing me? So why does this such a big deal? Why does the shepherd want to bring us home? Well, because in the human heart, in every human heart, we have a sense that we have lost our home, that we are made for a home that has been lost, that we are all strangers, we're all exiles, we're all lost sons and daughters. You see, we were designed for the garden, not the desert. We were designed for the garden. That was our home. That was our design. Anywhere that you're designed for fits you. It supports you. Right? I heard a pastor illustrate it this way. I thought it would help you. If you could get in a spaceship and go to Mars, and you got out of the spaceship, and you breathe the atmosphere of Mars, you would immediately know I was not designed for Mars. <laughs> you would die quickly. But if you get in that spaceship and you come back to Earth, you're not coming home because here you will die slowly. Easier to see with Mars, a little bit harder for here. But the truth is, anywhere that you can get hurt, Anywhere that you can get sick, anywhere that you weaken, that you get old, that you decay, anywhere that you die proves it's not a place you were designed for. Now, that means that this is not our home. This is not what we were made for. Now, a lot of people don't like to really entertain this, and I know I'm going to ask a lot of you, but, but, but Camus who I really don't like reading because it depresses me, 
which is what I'm about to do to you. But, uh, <laughs> but Camus was an existentialist, wrote a number of very important plays and works and stuff like that. But he had the courage to face the fact that he felt like an exile. He had the courage or strength to say, I don't belong here. Many of us don't have that kind of courage. We keep acting like we can find a home here when there is no home here. And one of the things that he explains is that every one of us, whether we're conscious of it or unconscious, we have a sense of not belonging or that this is not all that there is in a sense. So here's the way he writes. He says, beauty is unbearable, drives us to despair offering us for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. Now, what he means by this, I mean, it's probably a lot, that he, but one of the things that I'd like you to understand that he means is that when you see something that's beautiful or you feel or experience something that's perfect, there's a part of you, it may be unconscious, but there's a part of you that despairs at that because it won't stay that way. How many of you have ever tried to recreate a perfect experience you had only for it to be miserable for you? Or you go home or whatever it is and you go home back to something and you go, you know, I thought it was bigger than this or I thought it was prettier or I thought it was better. Because what he's saying is that that, that moment that you experience that beauty reminds you this is fleeting. I, I don't know if any of you are like me. I love to watch old movies. I like black and white ones. I like color ones and all that stuff. But, but when I'd watch it, I'll Google the actor or the actress who's so handsome or so pretty. And when I Google them, they're not pretty anymore. <laughs> A lot of them are dead. That was their greatest moment. You know, so what he's saying there is you want that perfect moment to stretch out for eternity, but it ends. It ends, and there's a sadness or a despair that comes. Now, a lot of people are not as courageous as Camus, and one of those, those, those shows that's not courageous whatsoever is The Lion King. Okay, I love The Lion King, I like the song, but it's crap. The circle of life, I want to puke. <laughs> Do you know what they're saying? You should be happy that you fertilize flowers. That's the circle of life. You die, you live, you die, you fertilize. <laughs> I'm furious at the end of that song. That's all there is to become fertilizer? I look around, some of you are wonderful friends of mine, and I look at you and go, you're just gonna be fertilizer. I might as well not care about you. <laughs> I think we should rebel against that and say, look, there's gotta be more than becoming manure. <laughs> now I'm gonna go see the movie, okay? I'll probably sing the song, because <laughs> it's a great song. But it, the philosophy behind it is the best you can hope for is to fertilize a flower that an animal eats, then poops, and fertilizes another one, and the circle keeps going. It's a circle of poop. <laughs> I mean, are you, I, 
Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not courageous. It's inane. If that's all there is, maybe we should be like Camus and kill ourselves. If I'm nothing more than an accident intended to fertilize. But that's not what we feel. I mean, why do we care that beauty is sustained? Why is it that I long for a love that lasts? Why do I want to love someone forever or be loved forever? Why is it I long to be significant and make an impact? Could it be, and I believe it is, God put a memory trace in your soul that never goes away. Even if you've never heard of Eden, there's a memory trace of what you were designed for. And that, that garden was what I was made for. So what happens then is because I don't realize really that I'm, I'm trying to make for myself a home. I'm trying to make my own Eden. So what I, what I mean by that is not simply that I get a garden in my backyard. Really what I mean by that is I'm trying to find significance. I'm trying to find purpose. I, I want to be secure. I want to be safe. I want to be loved. I want acceptance. I want to sense I have approval. I want to know that I matter. And if, and if that's there in you, it's really that old memory trace of when we were where and what we were designed to be. So what happens? Are you tracking with me? Well, even if you have the perfect family, it's not enough. Or if you have perfect memories. Here's Here's an interesting thing about memories. Memories are not photographs. The brain paints an impressionistic picture. The brain gives an impression to the memory. The memory that you have is never completely accurate. It's your impression of what happened or how it felt or whatever it is. So that every time you take the memory out and look at it, you change it again and again and again. And sometimes for the good, sometimes for the worse, whatever it might be. So this longing for home became really real to me, this very personal this past week. I, I, I don't usually go to Atlanta unless somebody else is paying for it, but uh, uh, like to go speak or to teach or something like that. And then I just kind of work out to see my granddaughter and Anna and Brian and stuff like that. But this week, Lisa and I realized we didn't have much free time this summer, so we went to Atlanta, and I had a lot of hanging out time. And Anna lives, my daughter and her family, live in a place where Lisa and I planted a church 30 years ago. So I was driving around, and I started crying. And at first I went, was there a lot of pepper in that fried chicken? Or, <laughs> But I began to grieve, and I began to grieve things that took place almost 30 years ago, 25 years ago. See, the church that we started, we were able to see some success. We saw it grow. We went to two services. We were building a building. All kinds of stuff was happening. But I was falling apart spiritually. And what I realize now, I would not have been able to tell you then, but what I realized is I went to Atlanta not to plant a church, but to make a home to make a place safe for me, a place where I could be significant, where I could have success, a place where I, I, I could find love and find approval and acceptance from God and others. And I thought if I built the perfect church, I could, I could have that home. 
And it was all pride and it was self. And when I crashed, you see, when I, when I crashed and burned because I couldn't keep up all that work and make everybody happy and do all of that kind of stuff, when I crashed and I burned, God met me in a way like never before. And uh, I threw a, a powerful ministry uh, with Neil Anderson. I got delivered from a lot of my spiritual and emotional strongholds. I began for the first time to feel life without all the demonic interference in my life. But by doing that, I broke the rules of the denomination I was a part of. They didn't believe in deliverance. They didn't believe Christians could be demonized. They, they wanted nothing to do with me. So when I thought everybody would be so happy to be as happy as I was feeling, half the church wrote a petition to get rid of me. Within a couple of months, Lisa and I were gone from the church that we planted and, and had nurtured for five years. And then within a year, we were, we were asked to leave the denomination we were a part of. And as I was driving those streets, those were the streets where members used to live. Those were the streets where the church was. Those were the streets where Lisa and I had looked at houses to live. And as I went through there, God was opening up some old wounds and opening up some old places because... I was disappointed in my failure. I was disappointed in my loss, but I never really faced the fact that I went there for the wrong reasons. Now, one of the things that I will tell you is even when you're wrong, it still hurts. Even when you do things for the wrong reason, it still hurts. And God is compassionate in those moments. And he was showing me so clearly how he had become my home instead of what I do become my home. And one of the things that, that he reminded me of is, is when I was going through this, this loss of church, this loss of status and standing, I, I took him at his word and I said, your word says draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Now I had a lot of experiences where other people had drawn the presence of God but I'd never had a devotional time alone or a prayer time alone where it was just me and God experiencing his presence. So I went into the bedroom, knelt down on the carpet. It was a very soft carpet, so I could stay there for a while. I knelt on the carpet and I said, I'm not leaving till this becomes reality for me. And in those moments, as I sought his face, not his hand, who he is, not what he could do, he met me, and he's never left me since. So that I can say to you, what I lost has never equaled in any way what I have gained from that. But I have to, I'm sharing this with you because I think you have to bring out into the light where you're trying to make your home. What you're trying to make, your safe place, your successful place, your purpose, your significance. Now, I think Lewis helps us here. C.S. Lewis, we had a little Camus, now we'll balance that out with a little C.S. Lewis, all right? So what Lewis says is home is somewhere else. Uh, let me read this to you. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, where well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let that sink in. Now let me, let me give you a couple applications from this. Some of you are uncomfortable here, but you're uncomfortable that you're uncomfortable. You're never going to be fully comfortable in this world. You weren't made for here. Some measure of discomfort is what it means to live in a place you were not designed for. Don't try to kill that feeling. Don't numb it. Don't distract yourself from it. Lean into it and into the one who connects you to the world you are made for. If you are in Christ, he is the vine, you're the branch. His roots are in the world you are meant for. His roots are in the Trinity. Many of us, when we start getting uncomfortable, we look for how can I get rid of this discomfort? The other thing is many of us, our lives are messy. Guess what? It's a messy world. Now, I don't want you to be unclean, uncouth, or whatever, irresponsible, but the fact that things don't go exactly like you plan, or they don't go exactly in the order, or the way that makes you look smart or powerful, whatever it is, get over that. This isn't the world that you have control over. Trying to control it makes you more assimilate into it than resistant to it. Make a decision. Okay, this is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm going to have some discomfort, and it's going to be messy at times. Look, if you listen to me on this, you'll get over being such a harsh critic of yourself and of others when it doesn't go the way you think. Are you, are you quiet because you're listening to me on that? <laughs> All right. Because I think that's incredibly freeing. I mean, one of the most freeing things that I ever read in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul says, we intended to go to this city. The Spirit said no. I'm like, man, if the Apostle Paul can screw up, I'm okay. <laughs> right? I mean, at some point, some of us in our minds think, I can never make a mistake. I can never do anything wrong. Guess what? It'd be better to say I'd like to not make mistakes twice, because then that's kind of stupid. But first time is the only way you make change. Every change is awkward. Well, how do we go home then? If the shepherd is trying to get us home, I, I really would like to change this question a little bit. What does it cost to go home? What does it cost to find the home that you long for? And here's what I, I think Jeremiah says, and I know Jesus says. It costs the tears of a mother. Now let, me, let me read why I say that. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in the Bible, names mean more than just the person. The name Rachel is like the mother. She's sort of the mother over all of Israel. She is connected as directly as mother to Benjamin. Benjamin and Judah form the southern kingdom. She is the grandmother of Ephraim. He, he is the name given to the northern kingdom. When God calls to the northern kingdom, he always says, Ephraim, my son. 
So Rachel is this, in a sense, this mother figure over all the people of God. And she's weeping. See, it takes in a way to save the people, it takes this level of tears. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There's three times in the scriptures that it says Rachel wept. The first time was this. It's important you get this. She was at a, a place called Ramah. And there she is pregnant and she is in labor, but she is not going to make it. So what we see there, she begins to weep at Ramah because it takes her death to birth her son. She dies in labor so Benjamin can live. And then in Jeremiah 31, again they're back at Ramah, and it says here Rachel is weeping, but now it's not Rachel, it's it's picture of mothers weeping because Ramah is the staging place for those who are being taken out of their homes and taken to Babylon. It's kind of like the pictures we get at times when we see the Jewish uh, people being loaded into trains to go to the concentration camp and you see the, this, the wailing of the mothers as children are separated and people are killed and all these atrocities are taking place. Well, Ramah was the place where they staged who would live and who would die and who would go to Babylon and who would be separated from their family. And so Rachel weeps over the children that are lost and they're not home and many of them are killed. The third time we see the, the weeping here, again, the tears of the mother, and is in Matthew chapter 2 where King Herod finds out there's another king and he's been born in Bethlehem. So he sends his soldiers and they kill every child under two years old in the whole region. And Matthew takes this verse and he begins to pull it into the New Testament and he says, Rachel weeping over her children. It's such a costly, costly thing. But in many ways, what he's really showing is that the real weeping, the real mourning and wailing is coming from Jesus himself. See, I love the scriptures because it doesn't stick to some kind of male stereotype or some male macho image. What we see is Jesus actually begins to emote and he begins to feel as if he were a mother. It's the tears of the mother that matter here, not, not just the, you know, some heroic action, but, but this deep-seated feeling and, and, and love that a mother has. And so what we see is that really Jesus dies in labor so that you can be born again. I mean, do you see, the Bible's so beautiful in a way. Rachel dying in labor, so Benjamin is born, so Judah is preserved, but then you have Jesus who fulfills that ultimate kind of Rachel type. He not only dies in labor so we can be born again, but he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Like a mother hen, he says, I want to take you, take you into my arms. And he was totally in exile. I mean, think of through this. He said, the birds have nests, the foxes have den, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's this way that sins were atoned for. You would take your sins and you would, you would put them on a goat. And you would speak and confess your sins over this goat. And the goat would become the sins. And then the goat had to be, had to be exiled from the city. And it was called the scapegoat. 
And so Jesus becomes the scapegoat because he's not killed in the city, he's killed outside the city. And our sins are put on him and he becomes that so that in his dying he is laboring for you so that in his death you are reborn. But think about this aspect that Jesus is that shepherd who is God himself but comes as a shepherd in the line of David. What a powerful picture we have of how much Jesus was willing to pay a mother's tears so that you could come home and so that you would find your true home. Even explains it hours before he dies. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you not think he's talking about your eternal home? In my father's house, he says, there are many rooms. And I go there to prepare this place for you. What does it cost for you to come home? It costs that you understand how to receive what he's prepared for you. I know it's a little after one. Will you stay with me? This part's really good. <laughs> Would you read this out loud with me? This is the new relationship that Jesus has purchased for us with the Father. Would you read verse 31 through 34 with me? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So let me explain. We could spend hours on this covenant, but I want to just spend a few minutes at the heart of this. Okay? So the old covenant was a collaborative effort. God said, do this and live. Don't do that and live. So the people utterly screwed it up. They did what they weren't supposed to do, and they, they didn't do the things they were supposed to do. They chased after other gods. They did everything to violate the law of God. So God doesn't say to them, to hell with you. Instead, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this new covenant, it says is not like the old, all right? So you've got to get it out of your head that these things are the same. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says the old is now obsolete. It is no more. It is, it is superseded by the new. In other words, the temple, the tabernacle, the priest, the holy days, the sacrifices, they're all useless. Anything that had to do with relating to God according to the old, is now superseded by the new. And what is the new? Well, the new is simply this. God says, I make a covenant with you. I keep the covenant for you. And I give all the benefits to you. Oh, come on. 
man. And it says, do you notice what it says here? This is for you who are the least to the greatest. Now, if you think you're the greatest, you're an idiot. <laughs> so you might miss this whole thing anyway. You're too great for this. But if you know you're the least, in other words, in all honesty, don't you know you're nothing but a covenant breaker? I am. I mean, even things I promise, sometimes I don't fulfill. Even things that I've wanted to do, I haven't done well. Things I haven't wanted to do, I've done easily. So in order for me to have a relationship with God, and God wanted this relationship with me, so there's nothing standing between me and him, he kept the covenant for me. He kept it for you. So that now, he gives all the benefits of that covenant to you. Now, Listen, this cost him. Because the covenant couldn't be kept by God alone. Because God is always faithful. He's always true to his promise. So God had to become man in every way like us, but without sin. And then he had to keep the covenant in the same physical form as you have. And he kept it perfectly. Do you understand? Jesus wasn't perfect for Jesus. Jesus was perfect for you. So everywhere you fall short, don't look at how much of a bad covenant keeper you are. Look at how great a covenant keeper he is. As a matter of fact, the more I look at my sin, the more I'm drawn to my sin. Or the sin becomes appealing or powerful in me. But the more I look at how he kept covenant for me and gives the benefits to me, I am overwhelmed by his love for me. So what happens is this. I begin to realize that home that I'm looking for is not a place. It's a face. You see, in his face is the fullness of joy. At his right hand of his face our pleasures forever. Here's the thing. Listen, you may have thought because you're such a screw-up, and we know you are, that when you look in his face, you're going to hear condemnation and disappointment. But this scripture says he already kept the covenant for you. And the father's already said to the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, so that when you are looked at through the eyes of God, when you are face-to-face, He's going to say the same thing to you. So that instead of going to God and saying, you know, will you explain this and explain that, you're going to say this. You're going to say, Lord, everything I sacrificed was worth it. Because even the place of heaven is the place where he has, he has stored up all the sacrifices you have made on this earth. Everything you've lost is waiting for you there. Heaven is not a cloud where you're playing a harp wearing a flimsy white robe. <laughs> Heaven is the completion of everything that was started in your life now. Every dream unfulfilled, every lost gain, everything that you were made for. As a matter of fact, it doesn't just say that you'll see the face of God. It says face to face, which means you will have a face too. But it will be the face you always wanted to have. The face without pride, without fear, insecurity, because you'll finally 
be home and his face, his presence will be your home. Now, please, please listen to me. When you're doing devotions, when you're singing, when you're reading your Bible, seek his face, not information. Seek an encounter with his presence. Draw near to him and say, I'm not going to let you go till you draw near to me. Because he doesn't say it's going to happen when you die. Eternal life begins when you're born again. He has brought his presence to dwell in you. The very face of God in some ways lives inside of you. The spirit of Christ. When you sing, seek his face. When you read, seek his face. When you pray, seek his face. And as you do that, you will be awed by how much you belong there. Will you stand with me? Can I, I just want to tell you one more thing about heaven. Where it is now is temporary. Even now, the saints there are asking Jesus, how long? Because heaven is coming back and coming down. As a matter of fact, Revelation says, there will come a new heaven and a new earth that will invade here. So there's a, a completion or a fulfillment that's still to come of where you and I will live in something for eternity that corresponds to you, is relevant to you that actually completes and fulfills that home that you only have a memory trace of now. But in order for that to happen, you can't just say, I believe in God, or you can't just say, I'm spiritual, or I'm religious. No, you have to receive by faith the very covenant that he made, that he kept, and that he offers to you all the benefits of. This he will not make you do. This he will not really compel you to do, but he wants you to do it. You see, in some ways, it can't be real unless you, by your own free will, say, I receive, I believe. So would you do that with me? Would you close your eyes? Would you say these words? Lord, I receive your new covenant. You made it, you kept it, and now you offer its benefits to me. By faith, I receive that Jesus is my covenant keeper, my good shepherd who laid down his life for me. I choose to follow him home. this is your first time to ever pray that would you would you tell somebody tell me tell someone don't let this day go by without saying you know what I, I came under that covenant today it's a beautiful I, I know I'm sorry I should let you go but I have not been able to let go of the spirit all morning as we come to this place he's calling he's calling us home Wherever you felt like you were in exile, you were a stranger, you were, you know, you were left out, you didn't belong, Jesus says, you're home with me. I'm your shepherd, I'm your protector, your healer, 
your deliverer. Let him in today. Let that covenant. See, once God says it, it's done. Once he covenants, it is. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not a hopeful future. It's a reality now. He's my covenant keeper. I couldn't keep it, friends. Could you? I couldn't keep it. He kept it for me. I'm so grateful today. I'm so filled with love today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You're my true home. You're my true home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.